Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We are in Acts chapter 2, uh, the last book we have to look at, at least the last complete book. And Acts 2 is a significant event in the life of the church. Uh, about uh, 40 days after the uh, resurrection of Jesus, uh, Jesus ascends. We saw that in Acts 1. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends. And this is the uh, birthday of the church. It is here where um, Christianity really begins to spread. And so uh, we call it Pentecost because the verse 1 makes it very clear. It was the day of Pentecost when all of this happens. And uh, we are told that there was suddenly um, a sound um, from heaven that sounded like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So remember, they're, they're sort of in, in an upper room area trying to figure things out. And suddenly uh, they, they hear this sound, um, and... and um, you know, it's tongues of fire appear to them, right? There's a lot of debate as to what all that is. It's it's odd imagery for, for modern readers. Um, as Acts 2 makes very clear, a lot of the imagery is taken from the book of Joel. So you can go to Joel and, and see some of that. But nevertheless, the important part is in verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is one of those passages, we've looked at others, where we get distracted by a modern theological debate, and in that distraction we miss the main point. The main point here is that armed with the Holy Spirit, the church expands. The church fulfills its mission. That's really the whole point of Acts. It's a great theology of the Holy Spirit. We'll particularly see this in chapter 5 of the Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, but it's a wonderful uh, book about the Holy Spirit. So in Luke's books, Luke-Acts, you have a great uh, Christology and a pneumatology, a great development of the doctrine of Christ, obviously in the book of Luke, and then a development of the, of the uh, doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. But what we do spend most of our time on is speaking in tongues. And so what is really meant by that? Uh, and this is where uh, I think this is a uh, secondary issue. That is to say, it is an important theological question that divides churches and denominations. So as a Baptist, I, I don't believe... Uh, in speaking in, in what we now call tongues, particularly in, in worship. I, I don't believe that. I don't think that's what the text at all suggests. Uh, but the Pentecostal movement, which takes its name from the day of Pentecost, uh, they do. Uh, so, so they incorporated you know, most charismatic denominations, Assembly of God, um, Pentecost, and others. Uh, they, they certainly do incorporate it. Um, so if you want to know why I hold to what I hold, I actually wanted to write my thesis on this until I, I focused it more on the emergent church, uh, is because the only place in the New Testament where tongues, uh, which is the Greek word glossa, which means uh, language, uh, words, um, is defined for us, clearly defined, is here in Acts 2. So you'll notice right away, he says that the people in the upper room, about 120 of them, those in the upper room began to speak in other languages. The word here for tongues, remember this is a first century document, not a 20th or 21st century document. Uh, they were speaking other languages. The word just means language. Um, and starting with Wycliffe, going all the way through the King James, all the English translations, they use the word tongues. We don't use the word tongues to often to, to mean language. We usually have some other connotation with it. But you'll notice that he then demonstrates that what they are speaking are languages. Uh, verse 5, 
Now there were dwelling in, in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now this is a reversion of Babel, right? So at Babel, remember you, you have everyone together uh, and they are separated into the nations. Now you have the nations with all their languages coming in and they're hearing um, the same message right, in their own tongue, in their own language. This is a reversion of Babel. Verse 6, And at this sound the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them in his own language. I believe it's the same Greek word as what we just translated tongue. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Right? Galileans are not the educated folk. Um, but they hear these Galileans speaking fluent um, their, their native tongue. So as an English speaker, imagine if I were in France and there were Frenchmen speaking uh, good uh, Bible Belt Southern English, right? Um, I would say, this is strange. Why are these Frenchmen uh, um, talking like, um, you know, some hick down in the South, right? Um, and so, so it, it, it does astonish them. Um, notice that then Luke names the languages, some of them, Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. So, so to me, the issue here is they are speaking languages. So whatever the gift of tongues is, I don't think it's, as some will describe it, a heavenly language. Uh, you're just not going to find that in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't work. We talked about it then. You can go back in those old devotions. But um, they seem to be languages. And this is the only place in Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament where it's clearly defined. With that said, don't miss the significance of this. That what you're having is not unity by uniformity. That was what happened at Babel, and that is really what we're trying to do as a nation now. Is what all despots do, is what all empires do, is you, you force unity by uniformity. Either conform or suffer. You know, get censored off of um, YouTube or uh, Twitter, something like that. But what you actually have here is unity by means of diversity. Right? And this is what the gospel does. So you still speak your language, but now the gospel speaks in your language. Because the gospel is sufficient for your culture and everything else. So, so what we see in Acts is how the gospel transcends uh, culture, language barriers, uh, political barriers, any, any other barrier humans have established for themselves. Well, from there, starting verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, he said, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So they thought, well, these people must be drunk, right? And, and, and I love Peter says, not even the time for that, right? No, they're, they're not drunk. Let me explain to you what is happening. And he, of course, quotes from Joel. So we said that Joel plays an important role uh, in uh, the early church interpretation of what happened at Pentecost. I want to skip down to verse 22. Men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, this is the first sermon ever preached, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, 
loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the center of everything Peter wants people to know. So, so I want you to notice the, the, the theological tension that's here. And I believe in theology, where there is tension, you should let there be tension. And I don't think you have to over-explain things. Let the tension just, just hang there in the balance. One is that Jesus was handed over by Pontius Pilate to be crucified and raised from the dead according to the uh, work, will, and providential plan of God. I don't think anyone's going to debate that. If you do debate it, what do you do with the Old Testament prophecies, right? They're very clear. It was God's will to bruise him, right? Isaiah 53. At the same time, however, we see the responsibility of those involved in the crucifixion of the Savior. Both are true. The will of God would not be thwarted, uh, yet men in their evil and wickedness um, freely chose to do the will of God, right, uh, for them. So um, there's a real tension there. But the central message to Peter is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he continues on. He's going to quote from the Psalms, spend a lot of time on David, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all his witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and here. You're going to notice that particularly in these early chapters, the disciples are going to emphasize two, two things. One, Jesus Christ, presented before you, was crucified and risen from the dead and is therefore Messiah. Secondly, we are his witnesses. Christianity is unique in that it is a historic religion. It's not about some, what someone experienced in a cave or some tablets people found uh, in New York. It is about God coming down, incarnated in a Galilean, who was Savior, who is divine, who is crucified in my place for my sins and risen from the dead. And if that did not happen, Christianity is not true. No other religion is willing to do that except that of Christianity. So verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. How convicting. You crucified your Messiah. If that's not true, I'm not sure there's any, any more harsher words Peter could have said to his audience. If it is true, I'm not sure there are harsher words Peter could have said to his audience. Because either he's lying or he's condemning them. I mean, this is striking language he uses there. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the emphasis here is not the gift of tongues, whatever that might be, but receiving the Holy Spirit. The languages shown earlier in the chapter are evidences of the Holy Spirit, but the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit. Now, um, um, there is some debate about verse 3. It's pretty straightforward. Repent and be baptized for forgiveness of sins. However, the debate is, um, is actually over the word and. So when asked, what must I do to be saved, does Peter say, you've got to do two things, repent and be baptized. If you don't repent, you can't be saved. If you're not baptized, you can't be saved. Is that what he's saying? Um, this is uh, where the what's called the Campbellite movement get their theology. Today we would call it the Disciples of Christ, uh, the Christian movement, um, uh, Church of Christ, I believe. There's, there's three major ones that come out of 
uh, the Campbellite movement. The Campbellite movement uh, nearly decimated the Baptist movement in Kentucky. This is why you'll find a, a Christian church and a Baptist church, essentially the same name, uh, across the street from each other, all over the state of Kentucky. My favorite example of this is down at Versailles. My ancestor founded uh, South Elkhorn Baptist Church. Well, the debate between South Elkhorn Baptist and South Elkhorn Christian is which one is, is the original because they broke off, uh, they separated, the church split, one Baptist, one uh, Christian, Campbellite, over the Campbellite movement. And there's tons of examples of this, tons of them. I believe if, if you go to Louisville and St. Matthew's, there's Beargrass Christian Church. I believe that is Governor Bashir's church. Don't quote me on that. Well, there's a historic marker in there saying this is where the first Baptist church of Louisville originally was or something like that. Well, it used to be Baptist, then it became Campbellite. So it's now a Christian church, a more liberal Christian church there. But so the question is, what must we do to be saved? Your New American Standard will add some words um, to, to separate them. But, but, but no, I don't think he's saying you've got to, be, you've got to repent and you have to be baptized to be saved. What he's saying is baptism naturally follows repentance. Which me as a Baptist then says, baptism does not precede repentance. This is why we don't baptize babies. But again, I'm biased. I'm a Southern Baptist. Or I'm not Presbyterian or Methodist, nor am I a Campbellite. So obviously, um, I've come to my conclusion uh, about this. And I do worry that requiring baptism for salvation is works righteousness, which is not the gospel. So, so I, I beg my Campbellite brothers to, to be very careful with, with that. Um, but uh, you'll see there verse 41 so those who received his word were baptized and there was added that day about 3,000 souls and what a great first day of the church isn't it incredible incredible well in verse 42 we've we got to move forward to 47 is the, the first vignette of the local church so what does the local church look like the very first one First of all, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. We call that the New Testament. So we're gathering regularly, the breaking bread and the prayers. So this is uh, the Lord's Supper, right? Communion. Um, all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed were together, had all things in common. This could be an issue moving forward, particularly in chapter 5. They were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need so that they were charitable day by day not just week by week but day by day they attended the temple together broke breads in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising god and having favor with all the people and the lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved oh and i believe there is a footnote check your bible it says something about they made politics their primary concern it, it i'm sure it's in there I just forgot to print it. No. No, it's not in there. Huh. Must be an oversight by Luke. Look, if, if we made this the priority as Christians, and not the other stuff, not that it's not important, but it's not the most important. If we made this discipleship, charity, worship, fellowship, how much stronger would the churches be? How much better our marriages and homes be? much better would the church be. Hope to see you guys here tomorrow.